Good morning, and welcome to Mayo's Church Community. My name is Angela Henning, and I'm one of the pastors here. And today we're going to continue talking about the book of Acts. But at first, I just kind of wanted to ask you a question. And while I know this is a live stream, I don't expect to hear those answers, but how are you? Maybe you can do a quick self-assessment and just think, how am I doing this morning? And I asked this question because I decided I need to be a little transparent this morning. I'm kind of having kind of a hard year. And for me, it started out with some challenges, but I held on. And I thought, okay, things have got to get better, right? I mean, I'm an optimist, and I kept thinking, tomorrow, or maybe the next day, or the next, and you know how that goes. Instead, in fact, it's gotten harder. It went from being tough to tougher, and I'm not sure if any of you can relate to that. But that's where I am in this year. And there are days when I think, okay, I've hit rock bottom, only to realize, nope, not yet. There's still more. It's gotten tougher once again. And then there are times I thought, if only I had a fast-forward button. You know what I'm talking about? If I just had this button that I could fast-forward this year, I think I might push it. I would be done. Goodbye, 2020. So I just wanted to check in with you guys and get that off my chest as we go into the book of Acts because we're going to be continued to be reminded that the early church in Acts had it not, did not have it easy either. And I know that last week when Melissa taught, she said she was going to take a break from persecution, from hardships in the church, and I really hope that each of you enjoyed that because today we're back. We're back in it. We're diving in to the tough times that the church faced. And as a quick note, I just want to say that when I say the church, I don't mean a building. I mean the people of God. It's not a matter where you live, it's, but if you're in this community of believers who submit to Jesus, we're called into one body, no matter where you are on this globe. And that includes those early followers in the book of Acts and includes us today. So we're going to see what's happening in the 12th chapter of Acts this morning. And I just want to give you a little context of where we're at. We are 15 years past the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're about 15 years past Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and filled his church. The church is 15 years into having the Holy Spirit dwell within his people. But that doesn't mean that it's been easy. The church is in 15 years of battling through some really hard things. The Sanhedrin, this Jewish tribunal, is still attacking these early Christians. The culture that many of these people grew up with is now turned against them and is physically attacking them, putting them into jail, rejecting them. The apostles been arrested. We heard earlier Stephen was stoned to death. That great commission that Jesus gave his church has not been easy to carry out. But still, in Acts 12, the church reaches this 15-year mark, and things should get easier, right? Because, come on, living like this is just not sustainable. An organization has to hit its sweet spot to be effective. At least that's what I read in all these books. Um, how can we go on like this when everything is so tough? The church is following Jesus. The Holy Spirit has come. The apostles are obedient to the gospel, and it should get easier. Okay, let's jump in and read these first four verses of Acts 12 together. 
It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for a public trial after the Passover. So in this chapter, right away, we see there's another change, another shift. But it's not the change or the shift the church was hoping for. And historians don't even really understand why it suddenly changed, but it does. The church goes from being persecuted by the Sanhedrin to be persecuted by Roman government. So in addition to opposition from the Jewish leaders, the church will now be attacked by political authorities. These first four verses, they demonstrate this shift. And right away, we see a name. We see the name Herod. And this is actually the third Herod that we've encountered in the New Testament. And spoiler alert, it won't be the last. And just as a side note, when you see the name Herod, it's not a good thing. In fact, if you are one of the many families that Amaze right now who is searching for that perfect baby name, I would strongly suggest skipping Herod. It's, it's just not a good one. Okay, so when we see the name Herod, it signifies an enemy of God. This is Herod Agrippa the first. He's the grandson of Herod the Great who killed all those baby boys around the time that Jesus was born. And then his uncle is Herod who had John the Baptist executed and who oversaw Jesus, questioning right before Jesus um, was killed. And now this current Herod, Herod Agrippa, is ruling over Judea. He's a Roman politician, but he also considers himself a good Jew. So he begins to arrest the Christians. He has James put to death. And James is beheaded with a sword because he is now considered a political threat to Rome. And for the Jews, beheading was the most shameful of deaths. James preached the gospel of Christ, and now the, what he's preaching is not only said to be against the Jewish faith, but it's said to be a threat to Rome. Now, Rome is a pretty tolerant society. In Rome, you could bring whatever God you wanted into the mix. But the problem with the early Christians is they only worshipped one God. They only believed that Jesus was Lord, and that is when the Roman tolerance seemed to end. So he, um, he begins to arrest the Christians. He, he puts James to death. And James was one of the first, uh, with the three apostles. There was 12 apostles, but there was three that were particularly close to Jesus. James, his brother John, and Peter. These three apostles have been called the pillars of the church. And what does Herod want to do? He wants to destroy the church. So he decides to go after the pillars. He kills James, and he immediately goes after the next pillar, Peter. In Herod's mind, if he takes out the pillars, he could destroy the church. If he could take out these key leaders, the church would crumble. James is killed. Leaders of Peter's culture, some Peter probably grew up with, applaud the death of Peter's friend. And now Peter is being attacked. This could feel really personal. The king is singling out individuals. And in many ways, it is extremely personal. Losing your life is personal. Being thrown in jail is personal. But the truth is that it's not so much about these individuals 
is about a kingdom battle that's going on. To the enemy, James and Peter are just a means to an end. And while no one has threatened me, no one has threatened to at least behead me this week, there are moments when I feel attacked. And I think it's vital to realize what's really going on. There's a battle. It's a battle that seeks to destroy his kingdom, and it's not so much about me. It's vital that we keep this truth in front of us. We have to see what's real. Because the goal of the enemy is division. The goal is hate. The goal is to stop the church from being the church. If we can focus on the truth that we are called to love like Jesus, no matter the situation, then we're empowered. We're empowered to have real conversations. We're empowered to serve others. We're empowered to be the community God has called us to be. This is the long game, and we have to keep our eyes on what we're called to be and who we're called to serve. The distractions wound us, and they can separate us from what's real. But let's go back and see what's happening with Peter. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for, to God for him. And the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So Herod is so intent on this plan that he wants to leave nothing to chance. He takes extraordinary security measures. We have four squads of four soldiers set to watch this man around the clock. And while it's not unusual for a prisoner to be chained on one side by a Roman guard, Peter is chained with a Roman guard on each side. Maybe Herod had heard about Peter's previous prison break, or maybe he's just so eager to get his plan into action, but for whatever reason, he doesn't seem to take anything to chance. So for Peter right now, things must have seemed to have gone from tough to tougher. And I'm sure that there were times that the early followers of Jesus just thought, if only we could hold on and survive, this persecution will ease up. They can't keep attacking us forever. But now, instead of things getting better, things have gotten even tougher for these early followers of Christ. Peter's dear friend and fellow apostle had been beheaded. James, by the way, is the first apostle to lose his life. And after 15 years of leading the church, Peter has to be questioning what it even means to be the church right now. Was this the end? How much more could the church take? Peter knew that Jesus had said to his disciples that they would be seized. Peter knew that Jesus told them they would be persecuted and that they would be imprisoned and put on trial for his name. Peter knew there would be a cost. And Peter even knew that eventually he would probably lose his life. But I wonder if he was thinking, now, God, is now the time? Am I done? Peter is asleep in the midst of all this. Maybe he's exhausted. Maybe it's grief. Maybe he's at peace, and he's just resigned that this is the end. But then this happens. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. He had no idea what the, angel was do, what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. 
They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. So not only is Peter asleep in this prison, he's in this deep sleep. And the angel has to strike him. And if the word they use is not a gentle nudge. <laughs> but um, the, the chains fall off Peter. He gets dressed. Even the, the angel seems to need to walk him through all of this. Put your clothes on. You know, kind of what I do with my seven-year-old. But he does not seem to know if it's for real. And if you remember last week when Melissa sp- spoke about his vision, I kind of don't blame him because he just had a vision earlier. This seems so unrealistic, everything that's happening. So he's kind of in a stupor. And it's not surprising um, to say that this miracle was so great, it's so amazing, that it could have conjured up a sense of disbelief, which could also make Peter think it must be a vision. I mean, his situation in prison seemed impossible. He had just lost his friend James, and that might have been a, seemed like an indication of his own death. And as Peter comes face to face with a messenger of God, his chains fall off, he walks by one set of guards, then another set of guards, and then the iron gate, this heavy iron gate, just swings open. It's an unbelievable moment, one unbelievable moment after another. And here, in the midst of these tough times, here God is demonstrating his power. God is reminding his church that he is greater than religious leaders, and he is greater than political authorities. Peter realized that this miracle is really taking place. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. Then she kept insisting that it was so. They said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And they opened the door, and they saw them, and they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and he left for another place. Um, Just as a quick note, this is a different James, not the James who was just um, executed. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Peter is basically handing off his authority in Jerusalem right now. So in the morning, there was a small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. So we have this ironic moment. Peter escapes from a maximum security Roman prison situation, and he goes to the place where people are praying for him, and he has trouble getting in. So... Rhoda, this servant girl, is so excited that she leaves Peter out there. So let me remind you, he may have escaped from the prison, but Peter is a fugitive. He's a fugitive who's out in the open. He could be re-arrested at any moment if anyone were to see him. It's not safe in the city. He even makes this risky move by trying to communicate with these people at this prayer meeting. In fact, when the group finally comes down, he's like, shh, come on. i got to get my message and get out of here. So the group who was praying for Peter... They don't believe this announcement that he's there. And I think sometimes we assume they've been praying for his rescue, 
but they might have just been praying for strength as he faced his own execution. Either way, God brings the subject of their prayers to the door, and they doubt God's answer. They cannot accept the possibility that God has intervened in this manner. But in the midst of this divine rescue, we must still see that God's intervention does not always mean an end to suffering. Peter is rescued from death, but that doesn't change the reality of his situation. He is now forced to leave Jerusalem. He must get out before Herod and the guards discover he's gone. He is still in danger. He would continue to be persecuted. He has to leave the city and his role as the leader. His life would continue to be difficult. Yet, in the midst of all this, we're reminded of where the real power in this situation lies. And we're going to have Herod, this king, this king who called himself a Jew, goes on to attend a festival. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the God continued to spread and flourish. So there's this Jewish historian named Josephus, and he writes about this event. So there were these games, and they were honoring him, and Herod has this, this robe that's made from real silver, and it, it sparkles in the sun, and people cheered him like he was a god. And Herod accepts being called a god. But in this ironic moment, the man who says he's a god, which means he's immortal, is struck down by the real God to just demonstrate the exact opposite of what he's saying. And Herod's not killed because of what he does for James or what he does to Peter. He's actually struck down because of his own arrogance. And the facade of the power he had, it just, it just dissolves right there. But the part of this chapter that I think is most powerful for Peter and most powerful for the early church and most powerful for us today is this verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So here's a quick recap. This is what we know. Fifteen years into being the church, things have gone from tough to tougher. People who devoutly love Jesus are killed. Peter is imprisoned. He's forced to separate from those he loves. And more people than ever want to persecute the church. Yet in the midst of things getting tougher, the word of God continues to spread and flourish. The church grew as many people came to know God. This doctrine, this message of the gospel, preached by the apostles, grew and it multiplied. And this is what this is the truth that Herod misses. The church does not survive because of men and women. The church does not survive because of a great economy or political freedoms. The church survives, the church spreads. The church flourishes because the power of Jesus Christ. The answer was the same in the book of Acts, and it's the same today. As Peter leaves Jerusalem, I wonder what he was thinking. I wonder if he remembered when Jesus looked in his eyes and said, And I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. But Peter is not the builder. Peter did not build the church. Jesus is the builder. Jesus Christ and what he builds will not be overcome by any situation or by any context. 
And despite Peter's arrest and ultimately his own murder, the gates of Hades do not overcome the church. So we see what Herod does in this story. We see what the church does in this story. Rome flexes his power through force, through weapons, through groups of soldiers. And the church doesn't have weapons or battalions or any political clout. They have no recourse when James is killed. They have no means to help Peter because they are aware of their very, very limited um, capabilities. They are able to turn to the real source of power. They turn to God. And they are intensely aware of their need for Jesus because of their suffering. They gather in that home and with imperfect prayers and even faith that was struggling, and they seek God. They seek his power. And it's easy to focus on Herod or Peter in this story, but the truth is that this is God's story and that God is active and he's present in every single part of it. James loses his life, but God is with James in that moment. Peter is arrested, but God has more plans for Peter and he intervenes. God chooses to end the reign of a king, not because he was worried that that king might stop the church, but for matters of that man's heart. God stays with those Christians who are forced to say goodbye to Peter, and that same God goes with Peter. The reality is that God continues to work and to be with us in all times. The truth is that we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We do not know if things are going to get better. And when things are really hard, we may need to ask God how to be his church. We also may need to ask God to show us what he's doing in this season. Where is God leading me in this time? Those answers may take some time, and we may have to keep continuing to ask and listen for his answer. It's not easy, but the same Jesus who says, follow me, has never included an exemption clause. He never said, follow me except when you find yourself as an outcast. He never said, follow me except when you're afraid. He never said, follow me except when you feel powerless or tired or frustrated. He didn't even say, follow me except when there's a pandemic. It's not there. I may have looked for that one, but it's not. So he is asking us to engage with him. He's asking us to engage with our suffering and with the suffering of others. Yes, the ways in which we're going to engage is going to look different in different circumstances, but we're still called to engage. And here's the truth. The word of God will continue to spread and flourish, and it will not wait for the ideal time. It will not wait till things are better. And it does not rely on perfect people, but God is still willing to partner with us. Those imperfect early Christians prayed. That's all they had, and God honored those prayers. He empowered them, and he's willing to empower us. We may not escape suffering, but I know he's willing to help us stand up under it. In fact, the word of God seems to spread faster when things are tough. For thousands of years, when faced with adversity, Christians have wondered, is this the end? Are we in the end times? And in these moments, we have no greater call than just to continue to be the church, to continue to spread the gospel, to continue to be a reflection of the truth of Christ and to continue to love one another. 
we've seen that the gospel cannot be limited, and God will not allow it to be limited. And there are so many world and local events that can seem as though something like obstacles to the gospel. And it's easy to become fearful or despondent when it seems like an impossible situation. And when we feel like we are chained down on both sides, it may be tempting to assume that this is the end. We might even feel justified to quit. But here's the truth. Jesus Christ is on the throne. And our calling is to be his church, and it's not on hold. Our calling is to be faithful Christians who worship God, who serve him and others, and proclaim this truth, and that's not on hold. How I worship God, how I serve him and others, and how I proclaim his truth may look different from day to day and from season to season. In these months, I have continued to ask Jesus to show me how. But I cannot wait for a better time or a less tough season. What I can do is follow Jesus with no exemptions. What I can do is make that choice daily. This week, despite the obstacles and despite the context of your current situation, can you tell Jesus, I trust you? Can you tell Jesus, I am still following you? Can you ask Jesus to show you how? Show you how to be the church. Show you how to serve others. Show you how to engage at things that are really, really tough. Maybe this means that every morning you're going to recommit to that promise. I'm going to follow you, Jesus, wherever you right now. Jesus' church is flourishing and it's spreading, and we do not want to miss out on the work he's calling us to. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have invited us to be your church, and we ask in this season, if there are things that we see as chains, that you remind us of the truth. You remind us that the church cannot be chained down and your gospel cannot be chained down. Give us courage, give us strength, and give us peace today. In your name I pray, amen.